0: and turn with me to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, and look at the first nine verses of chapter 12. Many of you are aware that the Iowa caucuses are now behind us, and the campaigns for various candidates on both sides are now ramping up for New Hampshire. Uh, Each leader is campaigning to win your support. They're asking you to stand with them and support their political agenda and place your hope in what they're confident they can accomplish in the White House. They don't merely cast goals in case they should be elected. They're inviting you to view the world through their moral and political grid. Some, of course, being better than others. But there's another campaign going on as well, and it's much older than the current presidential race. Oh, it's even older than America. It's an ancient campaign we may not often think about. All of us who are in Christ know about this campaign campaign because each of us were once part of it. Ephesians 2 says that we once followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a campaign that David describes so well in Psalm chapter 2, where the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth, they take counsel together and, and plot against the Lord and his anointed. It's a campaign that stretches across the ages since Adam fell into sin and one that will end with a climactic gathering of all nations who will make war against God and his people. It's a campaign that's inspired by Satan himself and will one day reach its full personification through the deception of the Antichrist. And even though Antichrist hasn't shown up yet, 1 John 2.18 says this, that his spirit is already at work. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. His final campaign is taking place to gather the nations against God and his people. Zechariah 12 gives us a glimpse into the final battle, where all the nations gather against God. And Zechariah 12 shows us that if you belong to God's people, then there's no reason to fear defeat. The campaign of the pagan world against God, no matter how looming it may look and how strong it may become, it's ultimately a lost cause because God cannot be defeated and he will win the final battle for his people. Let's read of this together, in, starting in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem." And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations That come against Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use this word to compel us to live for Christ's kingdom and Christ's kingdom alone. And that our hearts would no longer be divided. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that last line there, verse 9. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's basically a summary statement of the whole passage that we're looking at. On that day is one of those code words. It doesn't refer to just some indefinite period of time, but to a particular future day when God delivers His people in a great battle. Some take these events to refer to the capture of Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. Others say it refers to the fall of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Both of those events are certainly future to Zechariah's prophecy. The only problem is that neither of those events fit all the details of this prophecy. Especially in the way it speaks of God's final defeat of all the nations. And in the way that chapter 14 associates this same battle with the second coming of Jesus Christ. You can see that in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 14. Also, Revelation chapter 16 pictures the Antichrist deceiving the whole world and assembling them for battle on the great day of God Almighty just outside of Jerusalem. And then the details in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 with the cup of God's wrath and the return of Christ and the defeat of all of his enemies seem to square better with the details of this prophecy. And so I understand Zechariah to be speaking of the final battle outside Jerusalem at the return of Jesus Christ. And essentially he's telling them that God will win that battle. Pagan nations will each send their representative forces to wage war. They'll attempt to snuff out God's chosen people, but God will destroy all of them. And win the final battle. But the message is more than just that. It's more than just God wins. It's also God cares for you. He knows your weakness. He will strengthen you. He will keep his eye upon you. And if you belong to him by faith in Jesus Christ, then you too will win the battle. Some of these things will come out as we walk through our passage, but let's first begin with the vision of God in verse 1. He is the Creator. It says, Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the Spirit of man within Him. All three of these concepts, stretching out the heavens, founding the earth, Forming the spirit of man within him, they come straight from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But what's the point of revealing himself as creator before he says anything about this final battle? A few reasons. If he stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and not one person breathes apart from his say-so, wouldn't you want to be on his side of the battle? I mean, when you really weigh it out, you've got all the nations, or the one who gives them all breath. These words reassure the people of his strength over all the nations. Their very existence is in God's hands. The right response is to forsake any trust in the world's kingdoms, and return to your Creator. It also reassures them that He is in control. The heavens and the earth don't exist by their own will, and neither does man. The battle isn't happening because God lost control. Now, everything happens under His sovereign control as Creator. But even further is this. God is making a new creation. He reveals himself as the creator at the beginning of chapter 12, because by the end of chapter 14, we will be in the new creation kingdom of God. There's just a few steps that need to take place before getting us there, and one of them is bringing order to the chaos. In the same way that God brought order to the cosmic chaos in Genesis 1. You know, the earth was without form and was void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, then said, let there be light. He brought order to that cosmic chaos. In the same way, he promises to bring order to the earthly chaos in Zechariah chapter 12. There is chaos among the nations because they refuse to submit To the Lord's rule. But he as creator will so speak. And will so act that they will be removed. The days of their chaos will end. He created the world with words. Now he's recreating the world with words. God's word through the prophet. Is history shaping and history determining. The rebellion will cease. So how will it end up how will he end up removing this this chaos? First, he'll make Jerusalem an immovable city. Verses two and three bring this out. We get a picture of all the surrounding pagan peoples staging a siege against Jerusalem and even against Judah. And you, you might recall from, from chapter 1 uh, that the surrounding cities of Judah are closely tied with Jerusalem. So that whatever is happening in Jerusalem is happening in uh, Judah. Uh, and so if, if Jerusalem falls, in other words, then Judah itself is finished. But that's not going to happen because God won't let it happen. We get a couple of metaphors that that say Jerusalem will actually withstand the onslaught of the nations. And the first comes in verse 2. I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. What's a cup of staggering? Well, throughout the Old Testament, uh, drinking God's cup, or his goblet, Uh, is largely a metaphor for suffering under the wrath of God. For God to pour out his cup was for him to enact his judgments against his enemies. You can see this especially in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 49. He forces his enemies to gulp down his cup to the point of staggering and humiliating disillusionment. And that much is going on here, only that Zechariah uses a different Hebrew word than normal. It's not merely a goblet, it is a bowl, a basin. The idea being that the wrath will be plenty. All the surrounding peoples will gather against God and his people, only to prove themselves the fool's. ...forced to become drunk with God's wrath. The other metaphor comes in verse 3. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Two other places, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Psalm 118... uh, ...they relate a stone to the final unshakable kingdom of God's Messiah who we know is Jesus Christ. Uh, Daniel 2 is especially helpful. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. There's these four world kingdoms that end up getting dashed to pieces. There's a stone that's hewn out of a rock by no human hand, and the stone comes and dashes them to pieces, and then eventually this stone grows into a, a mountain and covers the entire earth and lasts forever. That is the kingdom of Christ. Zechariah seems to be building on that same imagery. Jerusalem will be like that final kingdom of Jesus that cannot be shaken. And while the nations may come against her, they will only hurt themselves in doing so. It's true that when we get to chapter 14, verse 2, that part of the city will be taken at some point in this battle. So this battle is happening Over time, but once the Lord steps in to fight, Jerusalem gets transformed. And at that point, what our text is saying is that all attempts by the nations to conquer God's people are ultimately futile. The campaign is pointless. Uh, Next, we see that God will fight on behalf of his beloved people. Verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. You hear horse and rider. Your mind should leap back to the Exodus at the Red Sea where Pharaoh's armies come and they're trapping Israel. And what does the Lord do there? He tosses the horse and its rider into the sea. The horse and its rider eventually become a symbol of... Uh, for, ...or metaphor for the enemies of God's people. And in this case, all the surrounding nations. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic... ...and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open... ...when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. There's only one other place in the Old Testament... ...where the Hebrew words behind panic... Madness and blindness, all three occur, and it's in Deuteronomy 28, 28, which says this, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And this is a curse that is pronounced on on Israel if they rebelled against the Lord's word. What are we getting here? God is now enacting the curse on the enemies of his people. Remember from Zechariah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we, we were, when we went through Zechariah 2, verses 4 and 5, we saw that God removes the curse from his people in order that they might dwell with him in his new city. And we also saw that the way he removes the curse from his people is through the cross of Christ. According to Galatians 3.13, Christ redeems us from the, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus... When he dies on the cross, God's wrath, that curse, gets poured out on him in our place. And when that curse is gone, God is pleased to dwell with his people and protect them, Zechariah 2 said, like a wall of fire all around. The fire is no longer keeping them out. the The fire is protecting those who are inside. Well, the picture here is of the people of Judah... In particular, and it appears that they've trusted in Christ by this point. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 12 and Zechariah 8 verse 13 anticipate the Lord saving Judah in connection with his return. And we can infer from other places in the Bible that God fights only for the people that he's committed to through their covenant relationship with Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21, also speak of this day when God will will come uh, and fight on behalf of his people. Uh, Verses 19 and 20 of Isaiah 59, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come Like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turned from transgression. He's not coming to just everybody, he's turning, he's coming for those who turned from their transgression. Paul quotes that text in Romans 11. A little differently, and it seems there that he is anticipating a future day when ethnic Israel undergoes conversion to Christ, so that when Jesus returns, he's not coming to destroy Judah and Jerusalem for their unbelief, he's coming to fight for them as his people. That's the way I read Romans 11 25 to 27, when all Israel is saved. So through their union with Christ, their curse has been removed. And God so loves them that he keeps his eye on them. That's, that's another way of saying that God gives attention to your needy state. Sometimes the, you see the prophets crying out for God to turn his eye toward them. Because they are in a, a very desperate state of need. So he, he, he keeps his eye on them, and, and, and while he keeps his eye on his beloved people, he is cursing their enemies. And I can't help but think how this also fulfills the promise given to Abraham back in chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. That promise plays out in the final battle. Nations make war against the true children of Abraham who are united to Christ and God curses their enemies. But God isn't the only one fighting here. We also see that God will strengthen his people to win the battle. Verse 5 basically says that much as the clans of Judah, uh, they, they witness God strengthening Jerusalem and literally, literally say uh, they, they say in their hearts. So their, their hearts are being gladdened by this uh, here. They say in their hearts, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are a strength to me because of the Lord of hosts, their God. So the Lord's power is central to this victory. He is the one strengthening the people. We cannot win the battle apart from the Lord. His work is to save Jerusalem and by doing so strengthen his people in the fight. Verses 6 and 7 then use a couple of metaphors to depict how strong the people will be. It says like a blazing pot in the midst of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. Fire is regularly associated with God's vengeance in Scripture. Uh, we were already introduced to God burning down the forest of the false shepherds in chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, in Judges 15, uh, we get that really serious but funny story where Samson takes a torch and torches and ties them to 300 different foxes and sends them out into the uh, the grain harvest or whatever, and it burns everything down of the Philistines. He's trying to get vengeance on the Philistines and the, their crops go up in, in flames. The idea, God, he's pulling from this language back in scripture and, and the idea is that God will so strengthen Judah that their enemies will burn up like chaff before them. Also notice in verse 7 that God is just as concerned for his people fighting on the front lines, represented by the tents of Judah, as he is for the people in the city where he dwells. So it says, and the Lord, this is verse 7, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. They're not, so the, they're not in Jerusalem with, with all the protection. They're out in the field with the tents. He will give uh, protection... I mean, salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. The idea is that he rewards everybody equally with victory and glory. They, they all get glory. He's not going to overlook anybody. And then finally in verse 8, the strengthening of God's people reaches a, a climax. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem So that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The feeblest are those who barely have strength to stumble along. It says that they shall be like David. I mean, David was Israel's ideal king. He struck down lions and bears to rescue his sheep. He's the one that defeated Goliath. And throughout his career, he defeats many of Israel's enemies. But if we read carefully, in First and 2 Samuel, what made David strong in every victory was the Lord's presence and power upon him. The Lord's presence and power upon him. For the feeblest to be like David was to say that they too would have the Lord's presence and power upon them. They too would be victorious, not because of anything in themselves, but because of God. And then he moves to the leadership, the house of David. They will be like God, like the angel of the Lord, it says. In places where the angel of the Lord appears, like when he leads Israel out of Egypt, you can't hardly tell the difference between God And the angel. He even seems to be a manifestation of God's very presence and power many times throughout Scripture. To say that the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord, isn't to say that they actually become God. The comparison is functional, not identical. Rather, it's saying that God's presence and power will so protect them that you won't be able to tell the difference between their leadership and God's. This isn't something we often think about. But God's people will participate with him in the final devastation of enemy nations. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on what that participation will look like, only that it's going to happen. And that His grace will ensure that we are competent for the task. We're certainly not ready for that task right now. And as long as we're on this side of the second coming, our calling isn't vengeance, but self-sacrifice in the path of love. James even warns us that it is not the anger of man that accomplishes God's justice. On this side of the second coming, that is not our calling. It is only after we endure till the end that Jesus then gives us that authority over the nations. As Revelation 2 says, to rule them with a rod of iron and to smash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Which is another example in scripture where, the, where language that's applied to God and his Davidic king in the Old Testament, also gets applied to those united to God's Davidic king. Uh, Jesus is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and yet so will his people. How? Because they will finally be like him, having seen him as he is. So this is how the final battle will transpire and this is one way that God will begin his new creation work. He will make Jerusalem an immovable city. He will fight on behalf of his beloved people and he will strengthen them to win the battle. What could such a prophecy about the future mean for us today? Let me mention a few things to take away. First of all, Zechariah 12 confirms that there is no hope For the campaign against God and his people. There's no hope for the campaign against God and his people. Our passage is a warning not to embrace the lies of the world's campaign against God. Several places in scriptures say that even right now, demons are spreading lies in the world. They are feeding people an interpretive grid through which they're seeing everything that makes it believable that God can be defeated. I mean, we, we read a passage like, why would anybody come up against God? But the that's because the interpretive grid, it's been gone, removed by the Holy Spirit from us. You don't have that... Removal, you still got the interpretive grid. The demons are feeding you. And they make it believable that God can be defeated. God's word reassures us that He will win, His kingdom alone will stand. Are you somebody who is plotting against God and His people? Okay, perhaps you're not plotting against God overtly. But are you someone planning your life quite apart from Jesus' kingdom and its righteousness? Are you embracing Jesus' rule in your life instead of doing whatever you would have done anyway without him? Would your credit card statement and the way you spend your days reflect a love for Christ's kingdom or a love for another kingdom? Do you actually see, in this description of the nations fighting against God, a picture of what your own sin looks like from day to day? That the harsh tone with your children, or your neglect of your wife, or your lust for another woman, or your laziness at work, or your bitterness toward a sister, or your lack of concern for the church or your lack of compassion for the lost, do you see in all of your sin a war against God and His kingdom? I'm not trying to spiritualize this passage, but, but only use this passage to reveal the true nature of our sin. It is an assault on God and the people of His kingdom. This is one of the things, I've been doing premarital counseling right now with, Three different couples with and, and Rachel and uh, we're reading this book by Paul David Tripp. And one of the things he brings out in that book is how inward sin turns us on, our, and on ourselves to the point that it dehumanizes people. It makes them either a means to get what we want, or an obstacle in the way of what we want. Sin is an assault on God and His people. If we join the world's campaign against God, we will be thoroughly disappointed on the last day. There's no hope for those who campaign against God and His kingdom. If you find yourself living for another kingdom, then my plea is that of Jesus himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now is the day of God's patience. This day, this battle, has yet to come. Now is the time of salvation when God is inviting all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. So put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and His eye, it will be upon you. He will come to you in your needy state and rescue you from His coming wrath and make you part of His victorious people. Come to Him as you are, and He will be your salvation. Also, shouldn't a passage like this lead us to give thanks for our rescue in Christ? To give thanks for our rescue in Christ. I mean, first of all, we were all once part of the campaign against God. We were all dead and once separated from God in our sins. We all once followed the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were no better off than these Gentile nations that we're reading about here who are making war against God. Shouldn't we give thanks that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son? Shouldn't we give thanks that he didn't leave us ignorant to the truth, but opened our eyes to see his glory in Christ? We don't deserve to be on the winning side. And when we look at the nation's folly in this text to fight against God, we should actually see a picture of our own folly had God not placed us in Christ before that day. These promises aren't directly for you. They're given to the remnant in Israel. But in and through Christ, they do become ours. The only way we Gentiles benefit from these promises is through Jesus Christ. You see, he's the ruler from Judah to whom belongs the obedience of all the nations. Genesis 49 says. He's the descendant from David's house... Who doesn't just fight like God, he himself is God. Yet before he came to destroy the nations, he came first to rescue his people. On the cross, he did two things for us to make these promises our own, to make this victory ours. He became our propitiation. That means he drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. We deserve to gulp down His wrath on the last day along with the rest of the nations. But in Christ, God's wrath against us was satisfied once and for all in the death of Jesus Christ. Moreover, Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 13 say, that, say this, Remember that you were at that time, he's talking to you Gentiles in particular, you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, think you who would have gathered, against the na- gathered with the nations against God. You who were once far off have been brought near ...by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ... ...tore down the wall... ...the dividing wall of hostility... ...so that Jew and Gentile alike... ...are brought into one new humanity. So he not only propitiates God's wrath... ...but he makes us a part of his covenant people. And to be reconciled to God and to his people... ...is also to participate... ...in his final victory... So give thanks for your rescue in Christ. Eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, not with dread, but with thanksgiving. In Christ, know that God's eye is open to you. Third, live each day ready and faithful to God. Live each day ready and faithful to God. I'm taking my cue from Jesus here in Matthew 24. You know, Jesus teaches his disciples about the end uh, and his second coming and um, the judgment of the nations. Uh, But shortly after that teaching, so he takes that teaching and, and right after that he 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 teaches his disciples how to live until that final day comes. And two things that come out a lot is, is readiness and faithfulness. We must be ready. He even tells a parable of ten virgins. Five of them were foolish because they didn't take any oil for their lamps. And five were wise because they, did, they, because they did take flasks of oil for their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a great cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there won't be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That is probably some of the most haunting words. And the door was shut. And he's not letting you in. What characterizes those who truly know the Lord, according to his parable? Or better, what characterizes those who are known by the Lord? It's far more important to be known by the Lord. What characterizes them? Readiness to meet their bridegroom. Readiness to meet him. No matter how long he's delayed, his people wait patiently. They refuse to give up hope in his appearing. And they remain expectant of his arrival. Is that true of you? Are, there, are your days characterized by readiness to meet Jesus? That doesn't mean you resort to some kind of monkish lifestyle. It has more to do with whether he's the one you long to see from day to day. If that's not true of you, you won't be able to convince him to let you in once the door is shut. So come to him now. Make yourself ready by trusting in the work that he has done on your behalf. And he will give you the Holy Spirit who will make you ready for that day. We must also be faithful as the final day draws near. So I say one of the two of the things Jesus teaches is readiness and faithfulness in light of His second coming. Watchfulness for the last day is never a passive endeavor in Scripture. Jesus and the apostles insist that if Jesus' kingdom alone will be the last one standing, then every moment of our lives should be given over for that kingdom. And invested in that kingdom alone. What does that look like? Well, I'll take us back to Zechariah chapter 7 and chapter 8. Because he mentions a few things there. For Israel, at least. Which the apostles carry on to us as well. But Zechariah chapter 7. You can see it there in verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and, com- and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. If you turn over to chapter 8, verse 16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. That sounds like Paul. Speak the truth to one another in love. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So it's not just a matter of what you're not doing to each other, but we're not feeling for one another. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You may be thinking something like, well, that's not so big. Not necessarily something I have to add on this week. To be investing in the kingdom. Something that looks to others very super spiritual. Some specific vocational direction. I mean, speak the truth to one another. Render judgments that make for peace. Don't oppress the widow, the fatherless. You see, investing in God's kingdom is less about what you do and more about who you represent in all that you do. So invest in God's kingdom by maintaining integrity at work tomorrow. While you're on the clock, work heartily as unto the Lord and you will be investing in the kingdom of God. If somebody wants to compromise truth at work to win a buck, call it what it is and refuse to participate in it. Make judgments that are true. Show kindness to your brothers and sisters in the church and have mercy on them in their time of need. Speak the truth to one another as you, as you meet together for, for coffee or over dinner or, or in a care group meeting. Use words that, that fit the occasion and give grace to, to those who hear. This is investing in the kingdom. Use judgment as a parent that will make for peace with your children. Some of the reasons. Paul commands fathers not to provoke their children to wrath. We are to be making judgments in the home that make for peace. Ask God to grow your compassion for the oppressed in society. And to give you wisdom in knowing how to care for them. Perhaps the Lord will use you this week to rescue someone else from the campaign of the world that opposes God. The point is that every day we're given until that last day should be one that we give to our Savior and our Lord in all that we do. And the Lord's Supper, again, is a gracious reminder of this as well. You see, we eat this bread and we drink this cup until He comes again. And so everything we're doing in this life These days that he's given us is in light of until he comes again. Why don't we take the supper together now?